In the book of James this morning, if you would turn there in your Bible, the book of James, over near the end of it, if you're a new Christian and still learning where those 66 books are, James chapter number 4 in your Bible today, please. James chapter 4. And we always stand out of reverence and respect for God's Word here when we read it publicly. And so stand with me, if you will, James chapter 4 and verse number 13. We will begin our reading. James 4 and 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then it vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. And you may be seated. The man who wrote these words, James, is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He is the Lord Jesus Christ's half-brother. You know, the Bible says that Jesus had four brothers. You will find that in Matthew chapter 12. The Lord had four half-brothers, I should more correctly say, and James is one of them. He wasn't saved until after the resurrection. He must have been of sort of a skeptical turn of mind, and so he never really accepted his brother as who he really was, as the Son of God, until after the resurrection. And he's not the… Now, don't confuse him with the, with the, the James of Peter, James, and John that you read about so often in the Gospels. That's the son of Zebedee. That's not the same one. This is the Lord's half-brother, and he, is, he has become the pastor of that first church, and you read about him in the book of Acts a number of times. And in verse number 13, he says, go to now, ye that say. And go to now is sort of a King James era way of saying, now listen to me. Give me your best attention. Don't let your mind wander. And I've already prayed that in my prayer, that you will really give me your very best attention today because I can't think of a more profound question that anybody could ever ask than the one that Pastor James introduces to us here in verse number 14. And take out your pen or pencil, maybe, and underscore this in your Bible. For what is your life? What is your life? What a question. What a deep and probing question that is for all of us today, regardless of your age. If you're a teenager and you're just starting out and life is fresh for you, or if you're my age, or if you're somewhere in between, I can't think of a more profound question. What is your life? I looked up definitions of life, and I found out, boy, there are many. There's many different ways to think about life, and I simply am going to consider two ways. Number one is physical life. What is physical life? 
And the best definition I could find is life is matter that is distinguished by having biological processes such as growth, reaction to stimuli, metabolism, breathing, reproduction, and matter that has those uh, characteristics is distinguished from matter that does not, dead matter, inert matter, like the material of this pulpit. And so life physically is material matter that has these processes going on in it that connotes life. But I'm interested primarily, of course, as a pastor in spiritual life. And spiritual life is very easily defined. It's the life of God that has been put into the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. Now, how that happens is through the new birth. In John 3.16, or in John chapter 3, and that 16th verse that we're so, so familiar with, well, the context of that is that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and, he, and this religious, very moral man, Jesus, Jesus said to him, you can't ever go to heaven. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Born again. Now, the phrase born again there is from the term regeneration, which means to regenerate, to recreate life. New life has to be created in us if we're going to go to heaven, Jesus said. And so the life of God comes into the soul of man when we are repenting. We repent of our sins. We receive Christ and put our trust and faith in Him. Then we are born again, and we have the life of God in our souls. Men for ages and ages have sought to find the secret of life. Where does life originate from? What is the source of life? And the scientists and the doctors sought, sought for many years, many hundreds of years, to find the hiding place of life. And they looked in the body, and they looked in the brain, and they took the parts of the body apart, and they scrutinized them, and they looked at them, and they studied them under microscopes. But guess what? They never found the secret to life. And then they began to look in other places. Is life chemical? Is life electrical? Is there some other possible source for life? And men yet have been able to find life. Life is a mystery, except for those of us who believe our Bibles and we look in the Scripture and we know exactly where our life came from. Our life came from the Lord Himself. He is the creator of life, and so today we trust Him for our lives. As the days of our lives pass by, and as the days turn into weeks and the weeks to months and the months to years and the years to decades, and life begins to pass us, by and it begins to pick up speed, believe me, as we go through our life. We become sort of dulled, I think, to the significance of life. I think we really forget what life is in partial answer to old James's question here. What is your life? And we begin to almost take it for granted. 
T. DeWitt Talmage was one of the great preachers of yesteryear. He preached up in the New York area, known as a great, great orator and a great preacher of the Bible. And Talmage said this about life. He says, life passes us by in a sort of monotonous haze of routine, a monotonous haze of routine. And life just starts going by because we keep essentially the same schedules. We get up in the morning, we eat our breakfast, we go to work, we come home from work, we engage with people throughout the day, we eat our dinner, we engage in some activity for the evening, maybe it's a sport or recreation or time with the kids and family or mowing the grass or whatever it is we do. But over the years, it becomes, as Dr. Talmage said, we become dulled to the significance of life because we get into a sort of monotonous haze of routine. For example, let me give you uh, what I thought was a, a very profound thought that I ran upon. If you're 50 years old here today, and I just picked out arbitrarily a number, it could be 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 or whatever. If you are 50, you have lived already about 18,250 days. 18,000 days have already passed for you, and uh, you're already into the backside. <laughs> Thought I'd have to tell you that. Somebody told me they're about 55. said, well, I'm in middle age. I said, well, you are if you're going to live to be 110. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful how we can delude ourselves, huh? So if you're 50, you've lived 18,250 days. If I ask you to sit down and take a pad of paper and write out what was significant in 10 of those days, you'd have to think a long time. You see, Dr. Talmage is right. We become dulled to the significance of it because it's a monotonous haze of routine. And part of that monotonous haze of routine is coming to church. And so you came this morning, like you do most Sundays. Most of you are very faithful people here. And you come to church. You got up and you dressed for church and ate a little bite of breakfast, and now you're here. You shook hands with the greeters at the door. You uh, went to your Sunday school class, I hope. You uh, met some friends there. You came down the hall greeting people, came in the door, sat approximately where you always sit because I've noticed that people do that. That's how I can take attendance here. And... Uh, then after that, we sing some songs that you've heard before, and then I stand up and preach, and it's just easy to sort of space out the monotonous haze of routine. Boy, I've prayed that Lord, the Lord would help me break through that. Oh, what I would give. I have preached now over 10,000 sermons here in this church, and you know what? I have yet to preach one where I had everybody's best attention. So I'm praying today I will have everybody's best attention. Maybe this will be the day. Because my challenge is to get you to think seriously about Brother James's question there. Verse 14, James chapter 4. What is your life? What is it? 
Have you ever stopped to think about it? Not how long you're going to live or what you're going to do or who you are. What is your life? Well, Brother James answered his own question there partially. And in verse number 14, he says, it's even a vapor. So if you're taking notes with me today, number one is life is brief. There's some room there on the back of your program. And I'm going to give you six things about life this morning, and hopefully you'll remember them. Life is brief. It's brief. He says it's like a vapor. It's like a morning mist. And right now, this time of year, we begin to see that. We wake up in the mornings, and it's foggy, and you can't see very far. Sometimes they even have to stop the flights into the airport because it's so foggy, people can't see the ground. The pilot can't see the ground. And it's gloomy looking. And then time passes, an hour or two, and the sun burns it off, and here's a beautiful, beautiful, sunshiny day. In just a few moments of time, everything has changed. That's what he's saying about life. Life is brief. Oh, I know when you're young, when you're a child, man, I remember it used to seem like summer lasted a long time. Now, summer doesn't last any time, I can tell you. Of course, they've shortened it, you know, but it's still, it's, it used to seem like summer was forever. And a year, a year drug on from Christmas to Christmas was forever. But that's no longer true now. Those years just click off as you get older. And Scripture after Scripture describes for us the brevity of life. If you read your Bible, you can't help but notice how often it refers to that. First Chronicles 29 and 15, life is compared to a shadow. And so you see the shadows. I've been noticing they're getting longer now in August. And you'll look at something, the shadow is here, but then in just a few moments it's moved one way or the other. Life is like a shadow. It just moves on. Turn to Job chapter 9 with me because this one is so, this has three different elements and is so interesting, I thought you would like to, to see it. Job chapter 9 and verse 25. My days are swifter than a post. What is a post? A post is a messenger. In the old days, communication was carried on by people who were runners. They were messengers. They went from place to place. And so if you wanted to send a message to someone, you hired a post. And he would carry it to the next town. And he was always in a hurry. He was always running. He never slowed down. He never came in and sat down. He came and handed you the message. And then he ran for the door and he went to the next one. My days are swifter than the post who's delivering the messages. They flee away and they see no good. They're passed away as the swift ships. I'm sure living in our part of the country, we've all been over to the beach and we've looked out there across the ocean and there's a ship and you see the ship on the horizon way, way out there. And you stop and you look at it and you think about it and it seems to be moving so slow. You think it's going to be there for an hour. Ten minutes passes, you look up, it's gone. And so is life. It's like the ship that's out on the horizon, and it's swiftly passing. It's like the eagle, he says in verse 26, that hasteth to his prey. 
and you've watched on television on National Geographic or something like that, and that eagle is up there looking down at the ground, and he sees his prey. Perhaps it's a rabbit. Perhaps it's a rodent of some kind. And he goes into this steep dive. His speed is over 100 miles an hour, they say. And he's going right down to the ground, and at the last moment, he levels out, and his talons grab that little animal, and it's over for them. And he says, life is like that. Life is like that. It's swifter than the eagle descending down upon his prey. Psalm 39 is another one. It says in verse 5, our lives are like a hand breath. And you know, in the old days, they measured things by hands, short, short uh, distances. Even today, we talk about a horse is so many hands high, and we measure down the horse's leg up to the top of his shoulder, and we say so many hands high, about four inches in the average hand, they say. And so here, life is like that. It's a hand breath. It's a very, very short span. And soon, life is over. It's brief. And in Isaiah chapter 40, and in verse number 7, the prophet said, the grass withereth. You know how grass does that quickly. The flower fadeth, but the word of our God endures forever and forever and forever. Life is brief. That's what James says in answer to his own question. Look at verse 14 again, James 4. You know not what will be on the morrow. What is your life? It's a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanisheth away. But number two, life is a test. Life is a test. And you can write there beside that Psalm 17 and 3 where the psalmist said, Thou hast proved me, and the idea is you've tested me, Lord. You've put me to some sort of a trial, and you've tested me. You have proved me. And then later in the same verse, he says, you have tried me. Again, he means you've tested me. And so life is a test. If, we, if a company hires a new employee, they usually hire them on some sort of probationary basis, a 60-day, 90-day trial period, testing period it is. And we say, we'll find out what's in that person. We'll have time to observe their character. We'll have time to find out what their work ethic is. We'll find out their competency level. And so we hire a person on a trial basis, and the Bible says, well, life is like that. God is proving us in this life. He is testing us. Let me ask you, how are you doing on the test? Because God is observing. God is testing Bill Monroe. God is testing you. You know, before we get on an airplane, I was reading sometime back about airliners. And when they manufacture a new airplane down here at Boeing in Charleston, for example, that before that plane is ever put into service, it's now manufactured, it's complete, and they take it up and they, they have a test pilot flight, and he flies it for a number of hours before it's put into service. For example, to test if the plane is going to be able to handle movement inside, they put barrels full of water in it, 
and there are no seats in it yet. So it's the barrels of water rolling around. Can you imagine the stress that puts on that plane? And they turn it, and they turn it, and they turn it. And those barrels of water, weighing hundreds and thousands of pounds, are rolling around inside that plane. It's being tested. So when the day that 100 or 200 passengers walk on that plane, that it will be safe. It will be worthy. Students face tests. School is starting here tomorrow. And boy, our kids are not excited about the testing days, I promise you. But we test them to see, do they know what they need to know to advance to the next level? Stop. Have you ever considered God is testing you, me, to see if He can advance us to the next level? You see, we're not going to go to heaven and float around on the glory cloud like all these uh, heretical little poems and songs talk about. We're going to go to heaven, and there's work to be done. Our Father runs a universe. It's big business, and I want you to understand. He's testing us. He's preparing us. How will we do? We're being observed in our testing. Do you remember, Job, that God called a council together one day in heaven, chapter 1? And in that council is even Satan who shows up. And God said, has anybody here ever observed my servant Job? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. I hope he never says, has anybody observed my servant Bill? Because you know what happened after that with Job? Satan said, yeah, I've been observing him, and I'll tell you why he's serving you. He's serving you because he is prospering. He's being blessed by you. You take your hand off of him and let, let me have him for a few days. I promise you, you'll find out what's in him. And the Lord said, okay, I know Job's heart. So the Lord said, okay, but you spare his life. And then you know what began to happen. All these terrible, terrible events came upon Old Job here. You know what? He tested out very, very well. He made an A in the most severe test anybody has ever had. Life is a test. The test is, will I be faithful? Will I be faithful to what I say I believe? Will I be faithful when difficulties and problems come along in life? Will I pass the test? Will you pass the test? Are you passing right now? Or are you like some of our students who say, oh, right now I'm, I've got an F, but I'm going to try to pull it up. Are you passing the test right now? God is observing. The devil is observing. Angels are observing. Other people are observing. Will I pass the test? Life is a test. And then Brother James says again in verse number 14, what is your life? And Amos over in chapter 4 and verse 12, he answers and he says, well, life is a preparation. Life is a time to prepare for eternity. Life is the dressing room for eternity when we get ready for the big stage. And old Amos said, prepare to meet thy God. The student studies for years because it takes time to mature. It's, it's one thing to know it intellectually, but it also takes time to 
understand it psychologically and emotionally and, and to be able to come to a maturity level where you can use what you've learned. And so it takes a long time. A man going into a trade, it takes him three or four or five years. He works as an apprentice. An apprentice, he's working under somebody to learn a trade. And if you want to be a professional, it's going to take six or eight or ten years because preparation takes time. I plan a trip. I'm going on a trip somewhere. And I get out my suitcase, and I think, now, how many days am I going to be going? And so I count out the items of clothing, one for each day, and I'm going to need. And then I check before I walk out the door. Do I have my wallet? Do I have my credit cards? Do I have my car keys? Do I have whatever papers I'm going to need when I get to wherever I'm going that helps me uh, conduct my business? Do I have my Bible with me in my suitcase so I will be able to maintain, maintain my fellowship with the Lord? I prepare. Now listen, the longest journey I am ever going to take, I have not yet taken. It's going to be so long I never come back. Am I preparing? A man's a fool who lives within one heartbeat of eternity, and he makes no preparation. He makes no preparation. Well, I'm going to get around to that one these days. He procrastinates. He puts it off. He doesn't even want to think about it because death is not pleasant to think about. But again, I remind you, God is preparing me for eternity. He's preparing you for eternity. He's checking to see, am I reliable? Am I dependable? Can he count on me? Am I growing? Am I developing in my competencies spiritually speaking. He has a universe to run. There's a kingdom that he's building. He has a plan for every planet. He has a purpose for every star. He has a goal for every galaxy. And then life is preparation time. I'm going to be involved in that kingdom work somewhere, and I don't know where it is yet, but I know that God doesn't waste anything, that there's a plan for every star in the heaven. And what is he going to want me to do? And I don't know, but, you know, I'm not going to be floating around on a cloud playing a harp and sipping lemonade and some angel fanning me. I don't even want to go there. He says we're going to be busy in his work, and we've got to be prepared. And the best preparation of all, of course, it all starts with the gospel do you really know the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you, are you a member of the Florence Baptist Temple? That won't help you. I'm not asking you if you know the gospel. I'm asking you, do you have Christ in your life? Because Christ is life. He is the life. Life is a brief. It's a test. It's a time of preparation. Number four, it's a conflict. Life is also a conflict. It's a struggle. You've lived more than about 20 years. you figured it out. It's a struggle. With some, it's a fight against poverty, just keeping the wolf away from the door. 
with other people, it's a struggle with physical disease. With somebody else, it's mental depression. With somebody else, it's a difficult marriage. With somebody else, it's unhappy circumstances. And spiritually, it is a battle all the way through. I used to think that as I grow in the Lord, it's going to get easier. How wrong, how wrong I was. It doesn't get any easier if that's an encouragement to you today. It's not going to get any easier. And those of us who felt a need for greater holiness and greater righteousness, greater Christ-likeness in our life, boy, we understand what spiritual conflict is. I mean, I haven't had any battles like I've read some people talk about, but I know what. And just day-to-day living, trying to live a righteous and holy life, I, I tell you, it's a conflict all the time. It's the world over here and its attractions. And by the way, they're not any less attractive to me because I'm a preacher. They're attractive. And there's the flesh always pulling us, and there's Satan, the devil, Have you ever really tried to curb your temper? Buddy, it's a conflict. It's a struggle, isn't it? It's a battle. Have you ever tried to control your tongue? Some of you, I need to repeat that. Have you ever really tried to control your tongue? Have you ever tried to command your thoughts and keep those thoughts that come flitting into your brain, oh, Lord, I don't need to be thinking about that. Have you ever tried to control those thoughts? It's a struggle. Life is a conflict. It's a spiritual battle zone. It's so important what I'm saying to you right now. I want you to see it, and Paul described it in detail. Romans chapter 7, one of the the great mountain peak scriptures in all the Bible And I want you to turn to it again, and I want you to think again, as James said, give me your best thoughts. Give me your attention right now. And here's what Paul said in chapter 7 of Romans about the conflict that he felt in in his life. Romans 7 and 15, for that which I do, I allow not. I don't want to do it. What I would, that do I not. And what I hate I find myself doing. If then I do that which I would not, if I do what I don't want to do, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And that's the battle. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would do, that or I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And there's the conflict, that we are a broken and fallen people spiritually, and that there's always that pull of the flesh, the sinful nature. There's that pull, pulling me away from what I know is God's best 
plan for me. Life is a conflict. Number five, life is a prophecy. Life is a prophecy. Open your Bible to Revelation there, if you will. Go to the last chapter here in your Bible. The very last chapter of the Bible has something here for us that's just incredible. Chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, speaking of after death. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still after death. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Well, what an awesome verse. I didn't discover that verse until I'd been in the ministry quite a few years. And it just opened my eyes to the fact that life is a prophecy. Here's what I mean. That after death, the unsaved will continue in their sins. Did you hear me? After you die, if you die unsaved, and you die living a wicked life, you will continue in that same wickedness. Now, I tell you, people say, why is hell eternal? Because people are going to sin throughout eternity, among other reasons. Why is hell eternal? Because people that go in there filthy remain filthy. Those that go in unjust, they continue to be unjust. Unsaved continue in their sins even after this life. And then the second half of the verse, righteous people continue in the path of righteousness, growing in righteousness even after this life. It's an awesome thought. What I am, I'm going to continue to be, except on a larger scale in eternity. But God's grace can come. And that's why I preach every week and and beg people to come to know Christ and to live for Him. God's grace can come, and He can change the trajectory of your life, the direction that you're going. And without it, people generally, though, just continue right on, as the verse says there. And all through eternity, the unjust will be unjust and the righteous will continue to grow in their righteousness. Now, look, I'm not preaching determinism. What I'm saying to you is people generally don't change the course and trajectory of their life unless God comes and in His grace, He brings change into their life. Life is a prophecy. So when you, what you see is what you're going to see in a person into eternity without God's grace working in their life. And number six, life is uncertain. Now, let's go back to where we started, James chapter 4. And old James says that. He says, you make your plans in verse 13 there. You make your plans. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city. Tomorrow, I'm going to Columbia. Tomorrow, I'm going to Atlanta. I'm going to do business there. I'm going to stay there for a week or a year or whatever. I'm going to buy and sell, and I'm going to make a profit. And he says, whoa. He says, wait a minute. You don't know what will be on the morrow. Life is uncertain. You make your plans, but you don't know about tomorrow. There are perils everywhere, aren't they? Car wrecks, 
crime victims, mysterious illnesses. I think about when COVID hit us a few years ago. All that week, I was working on my sermons. Life was going on. You were at your job. And suddenly, about Friday, they started to give these dire warnings. And by Saturday, they were shutting the whole country down. And one week before that, nobody had an idea. Nobody had any idea where this thing was going to go. And suddenly, everything changes because life is uncertain. Listen, this has been a solemn message for the most part, but hear me. In looking back over my records for the last, say, five or seven, eight years, when the church has demographically been about where it is right now, I bury about 20 to 30 or 35 of you every year. About 25 to 30 people every year. That's about how many funerals I have of active Florence Baptist Temple Church members. I have more than that, but active. The people who are seated seated around you, maybe about 25 to 30, 35 a year. I don't know who the 35 are for next year. Might be me. Could be my family. I don't know who it's going to be. But I know life is brief. And life is uncertain. Life is a prophecy. Life is a test. Life is a preparation I don't think of myself as a coward. I don't think I am. But I wouldn't want to get in my car and drive home, which is two miles from here, without knowing that the uncertainty of this world can come and take out my body. I wouldn't want to make that trip if I didn't know that my soul was in the hands of Jesus Christ, my Savior. I don't know what's going to happen on the way home today because life is uncertain. There's a final verse. I hope you'll read it with me. Turn to 1 John 5 and 12. 1 John 5 and 12. And, and I could quote it. It's just a phrase. But I want you to see it, and I want you to maybe mark it in your Bible. Write that reference down there. 1 John 5 and 12 But he that hath the Son hath life. I've told you all these things about life, the brevity of it, the uncertainty, the preparation, et cetera, et cetera. But let me tell you the good news. If you have Jesus, you have life. And that life is eternal. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath life not life. It's that simple. It's just that simple. Either you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with Him, you've come to Him, you're trusting Him, you have faith in Him, you either have that or you, you, He's off on the side, He's off on the margin somewhere, and you're not trusting Him. You're trusting in your own knowledge, your own wisdom, your own energy, your own initiative, your own competencies. Either you have him or you don't, and you're trusting him for salvation or you don't. 
That life there is eternal life. It never ends. It's the life of the soul that comes in when we're born again. Would you bow your head with me in prayer?